Good afternoon, everyone. We're delighted to be here with you on this special day. <clears throat> it's already been very, very special. Uh, certainly the, the uh, offertory music and then that wonderful special music were just outstanding and certainly sets the tone for the day. Uh, I know you're all afflicted, but you bear it so well. <laughs> I see a lot of smiles before services, people visiting and talking about your feast plans and and the things that you look forward to doing. I want to welcome all of our guests. We have a number of guests here today. Welcome to Charlotte. We're delighted to have you as you pass through on your way to the feast. And certainly uh, the large group of you will be going over to Sunset. That's our largest feast site this year with over a 1,000 people. So it should be very special to be there. The second largest site we have this year being in uh, Branson with uh, about 780 people or so. But whether it's a small group or a large group, it's very special for God's people to be together, and certainly we're delighted to be here with you today in peace and safety. I know you're all thinking about breakfast, <laughs> but for the, for the meantime, please think about the spiritual food, and then later we'll get, we'll get to the other. You know, brethren, we are here today as a commanded assembly to consider an essential part of the plan that our Creator God, our Heavenly Father, has for all of mankind. Now, only a few understand it, only a few, and in small groups like this around the world today, they are observing this day. Now, today we'll talk about <clears throat> the big picture. Now, in the Church of God, we focus on that probably more than, than most people do because God has revealed His plan to us. We, we focus on the eternal overview that is required to make any sense out of the twists and turns of man's misguided history. 6,000 years of misdeeds, injustice, oppression that brings us to this time, which we believe to be the time near the end of this age. Can any thinking person not look at what's going on and then examine the scriptures and not realize that we are closer to the end than we were in times past? We are in the end of this age. Now, during all of this time of man's history, there have been only brief periods of prosperity and peace. For most of mankind, then and through the Middle Ages and even now, it's been very dismal. Not been a pretty picture at all. And people have lacked the basic necessities that they need. And ignorance and difficulties and war and so on has taken uh, a terrible toll. Now, the reason for this condition, for these hardships, for this heartache, is a subject you won't hear much about in the churches of this world, and I think maybe even in some of the churches of God. You see, brethren, the underlying cause for all of these terrible conditions and for the atrocities that are going on now and the things that have gone on down through the ages is sin. The reason, the cause, is sin. Sin is the cause of the heartache, the pain, the physical suffering, the murder, the lying, the perversion. Sin is the cause of all of that. Sin. What is it, brethren? Who's involved? What's the cost? Who's responsible? And how will it be dealt with? Now, brethren, these are questions that are answered by an understanding of this day. Yom Kippur, the covering, a day of atonement. Now, <clears throat> brethren, there's a great lie that has been foisted off on this world. It's widely believed, and it's the basis for a lot of religious beliefs and, and traditions and superstitions. 
It's so widely held, it so thoroughly permeates the thinking of people that sometimes I think it even affects some of God's people who really know better. But because we live in this world and we come in contact with it and we hear and see and do these things, maybe we're touched with it as well. Now, this great scam is that there is a battle going on between God and Satan for control of this world. The belief is that there's a titanic struggle between good and evil in which the winner takes all. You see, is this concept true? Is this widely circulated myth accurate? No, it's a lie. That's not the case at all. So today we want to look at the real story. What's really going on in this world? Now, brethren in the church, we talk about the truth. You know, we refer to when we came into the truth. The truth is precious to us. We're careful to tell the truth in our personal conversation. And we try to avoid exaggeration. Sometimes my wife looks at me and says, true words were never more exaggerated. <clears throat> so, but we don't want it. We, we obviously want... We obviously want to practice integrity, and that's as it should be, brethren. But there are many lies upon which people base their lives. For example, their, their beliefs and their hopes and their dreams. Mr. Winnell, Dr. Winnell, looked at some of these on the Sabbath, but we'll look at them again. One of these lies is that man has an immortal soul that permeates the religious world in their beliefs. And certainly we know from Romans 6.23, I won't turn there, where we see that the wages of sin is death, you see, and that the eternal life is a gift. We're not, we do not have immortality built within us. It is a gift from God. That's a lie that permeates so many things and causes so many misconceptions and so on. Now, the concept of going to heaven or to an ever-burning hell is a lie. And yet, you look at all of the religious beliefs and the, the denominations and churches and so on that um, believe that. Let's turn over to John chapter 3. Many scriptures we could look at, but let's just let's look at this. As, do, you know, when we die, in fact, I heard a very popular radio personality here in Charlotte uh, just this weekend talking about that. And he was talking about going to heaven. And here's a man who says he studies his Bible an hour a day, at least. And yet, he is misunderstanding. John 3 13, Christ's words, he's talking to his disciples here, and he, he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. So clearly no one has ascended to heaven but Jesus Christ. And, of course, we can look at other scriptures that, that would say uh, that and, and um, ex explain that. But you know the concept, brother. And yet so many people believe that. Sometimes I take calls here at headquarters. Usually others do that, Mr. Amen and, and Dr. Winnell and others. Uh, but this lady called me, and she was very upset to learn and hear on our broadcast that, uh, that we didn't go to heaven when we die. And she said, I lost a son, and I know he's in heaven. And I explained to her, no, ma'am, that's not what the Bible says. And we had a long and spirited conversation. <laughs> I did not convince her. And when we hung up, she says, I'm going to pray for you. And I said, thank you, ma'am, I need it. <laughs> but you see, people believe this. And I could not, even though I could show her the Scriptures, and we reviewed them, she did not want to believe it. She had, so it's there in their minds. Another lie, infant baptism. And you see, many churches do that. Baptize little babies, you see, and thinking that 
That is God's will. And that's not right. Here's a lie that we'll all be dealing with in in the next few months. Uh, Christ was born in December and that we should celebrate it. You know, the biggest uh, celebration, the biggest uh, merchandising event of the year is coming up. And from from the end of October on, we'll be immersed in that wherever you go. It's really hard to get away from it. It's a lie. And yet millions, millions of people live their lives and work on their budgets and spend their time around that. Another lie, that Christ was killed on Friday and resurrected on Easter Sunday morning, completely ignoring His own words that He would be three days and three nights in the grave. And yet, mainstream uh, Christianity uh, believes that, and it's also a very big, big part of their celebration. Uh, Clearly, another one that I grew up with as growing up being reared a Baptist, and that is once saved, always saved. It's a lie. It's not true. And yet people uh, believe that and base their lives on that. Let's look at a scripture that that illustrates that's not the case. Turn over to James chapter 5. A number of scriptures we could look at. But James chapter 5, James, the Lord's brother. James chapter 5. And here he's talking about if someone wanders away. And you know, sadly, that happens. We have small groups today. I remember when we had large groups. And so many of my friends that were closer to me than family are not a part of the church today. And here James was talking about that situation. James 5, verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. You see, that's possible. People just wander off. They lose their way. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Clearly, brethren, we see that people can wander off. People can lose their way. We know from the Scriptures that those who overcome to the end will be saved. And people do lose their way. They can uh, miss out on salvation even though they may have uh, understood the truth because it is required. God's way of life is, is not a sprint. It's an endurance race, and we all have to endure to the end. Another lie that's out there. Peter was the first pope. And, of course, the Catholic Church obviously has has built their hierarchical structure around that lie. It's not true. No evidence of that. And even in their own writings, they can show you that. And yet, that, that persists. Now, another lie that's out there in mainstream religion today is that Paul straightened out the theology of Jesus. Paul came along and had to straighten him out. Well, clearly, that's a lie. Paul uh, elucidated, he clarified, he, he, he confirmed the teachings of Jesus Christ. He was a great scholar, and he wrote so much of the New Testament. And certainly, uh, those who don't understand that get it all twisted. Peter talked about how, how some rest the writings of Paul. And then, of course, another lie. That is that the Sabbath and the holy days were changed by Jesus. No evidence of that. Clearly you all understand that. But think of how many people, brethren, are, are fooled and, and tricked by that. Now most of us came out of these beliefs when God opened our mind, when He called us. Some of you, that was a long time ago. For others of you, it's been very recently. But here you are liberated from those lies because God has opened your minds and called you. Hundreds of millions, even billions of people still believe these things and base their lives on them. 
Now, there's some other lies out there that are very pervasive, that cause a great deal of difficulty. Some believe that if you die in a holy war, you go straight to paradise. You know, and so they're looking for ways to not love their neighbor, but to kill their neighbor. It's, it's an incredible lie, and yet we see so many horrible things going on in the world now that have gone on in our country and in other countries because of this jihad, this holy war that they believe is a righteous thing. And then some believe in reincarnation. The Buddhists, you see, I think they must think that God is into recycling, you see. <laughs> Seems to be the thing. But obviously God doesn't need to recycle. It's not at all. It's not true. And yet millions of people are caught up in that in other parts of the world. And then many, the Hindus and others, for example, many worship the creation rather than the creator. Uh, it's an incredible thing to see worshiping animals when clearly uh, they are created beings. And they were, we, God tells us we should certainly not worship the creation but him as creator. Now, brethren, even in God's church today, there are some lies or half-truths that, that, get, that get spread around. Uh, for example, there's no government in the church. You see, some people have gotten off little splinter groups, this sort of thing, and don't un they've lost their way about the, the type of government that God has in His church. Some will tell you that tithing and the Holy Day offerings aren't required. Again, I got one of those phone calls the other day from a fellow who uh, called to talk about tithing. And he said, you know, tithing is just a tradition of the church. It has nothing to do with the scriptures. And so I turned to the scriptures with him. He were on the phone and I read them to him. He was unconvinced. You see, he didn't want to believe it. He says, no, you don't have to tithe to be a Christian. So obviously he was not interested in knowing what the scripture said. He was, he was hanging on to his money. But, but some believe that is not the case. Some will tell you that Mr. Herbert Armstrong, whom we honor as an apostle and who, through which we, God reveals so much of his truth, that he was a thief and a scoundrel and a false prophet. The Internet's full of that stuff. And some people read it and get discouraged, you see, because it's a lie. And then others will say that Mr. Armstrong was the end-time Elijah who restored all things, and if you don't believe that, then you can't be a part of his church. So you see, there's this misinformation and lies that are going on out there. And certainly we take the position that Mr. Armstrong did an Elijah-type work. Maybe you are. We don't know. It's not something we need to take a hard and fast position on. But others, you see, do that. Now, some will tell you that you have to understand Greek and Hebrew and to use those names to refer to God and to Jesus Christ. You can't just use the name in your language. You have to use the Hebrew or the Greek. You see, um, we find no indication of that in Scripture. And God obviously... We talk to God and, and pray and so on in our, in our own name. We have many translations of the Bible in the various languages, you see. Now, some will say that uh, you are responsible for determining the new moons and the postponements, that the individuals get to do that, you see. And, of course, it just contributes to confusion. And that's why we have people keeping the Feast of Tabernacles maybe a month apart from when we're keeping it, because they get off and do their own calendar, make their own decisions on those things. And then one of the biggest lies, biggest misconceptions, is that the work of preaching the gospel is finished. We don't have any work to do. It's just getting the bride ready or something like that. Now, brethren, sometimes a lie can contain truth, but has error mixed in. Uh, sometimes lies are part of the truth with important parts left out. It's kind of spun, you see, to, to uh, get a preconceived conclusion. So, brethren, on this Day of Atonement, I think it's fitting 
that we look into the Bible for answers to the questions that I've raised and some of these things that we've talked about. title of my sermon today is, When Sin Won't Be Around. Sin. What is it? Brethren, it's so basic. I'm sure it's a scripture that you've memorized, but yet it's so important. I think it's good, particularly on a day like today, that we take a look at it once again. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, we see a very clear definition of sin. You know, I'm so glad that the faithful water deacon didn't put the glass of water up here today. Because I would have downed half of it by now. 1 John chapter 3. And verse 4, here we see this very important bedrock scripture for us, brethren. It's so important to know this. 1 John 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now that's in the New King James. The Old King James, I think, had it better when it says sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is breaking God's law. It's simply and plainly that. And if you look at all the problems that we see and the ones I've talked about and others that I haven't mentioned, you'll see that they, the, the, the root cause goes back to sin and breaking God's law. Now, when we think about that, brethren, who's involved in that? Who, who is responsible? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 of 1 John 3. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Brethren, who's involved? The devil. It says here, from the start, from the beginning. Satan has tried to thwart God and His plan in every way. We'll look at the record of Satan's actions and influence in the sermon today. But first, let's look at the myth of this ongoing battle between God and Satan. Now, there is a great plan being worked out on the earth. Let's turn back to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. Beautiful words in Isaiah. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old. Why do we study the Scriptures? Why do we... Look at the Old Testament in great detail and try to understand it and read and study. Make a lifetime study of it. Because it says here, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Certainly, brother. Uh, He has a plan, no question about it. Uh, And because of that, we understand it. Observing these holy days reveals the plan. Those people that do not observe these days lose their way. They do not understand that at all. In the chapter before, in Isaiah 45, uh, it says, I am God, is repeated six times. God is emphasizing the point. There should be no doubt. And yet for many people, there is doubt. Let's turn over to... Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Again, one of those scriptures that helps us know who God is and what He is doing. 
Isaiah 55, verse 11. Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You see, brethren, God accomplishes what He sets out to do. We may stumble. We may have difficulty achieving our plans. But God, through time, He has the power, and He accomplishes His word. He accomplishes His plan. He can do that. And we can have confidence in that, brethren, as we follow his ways. Now, let's look at an example of God's authority over Satan. Again, we're going to show that there is no great battle going on, that God is in charge. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. You know this story so well, we won't read it all. Looking at basic things today, brethren, but these days are an opportunity to do that. To rehearse, to go over them, to be sure that we understand them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. You know the story in Genesis how Satan um, deceived Eve and uh, uh, then Adam went along and the curse that came upon them. And then we see in this verse, in Genesis 3, verse 14, where God is dealing with the serpent, dealing with Satan at this time. Genesis 3, verse 14. So the eternal God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle. And he goes on and, and talks about these other things. But you see, the point I want to make is God put a curse on Satan. He had the authority to do that. He had the power to do that. Turn over to Job chapter 1. Again, let's see how God deals with Satan. Very fascinating book, Job. Right before the book of Psalms. Very interesting discussion and back and forth here between the eternal God and Satan. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the eternal. So we see a conference, I suppose, a heavenly conference. And the sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Why? I'm sure he was summoned. He must be uncomfortable in God's presence. But he was there. And we go on. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And clearly, brethren, if you look at your news today and watch... Uh, read your newspaper, that sort of thing, you'll see that Satan still is going to and fro on the earth. And you see the havoc that he causes and the difficulties that we see. In every corner of this world, in every society, we see that going on. And he was it's going on back at that time, going to and fro and walking back and forth on the earth. Now, you know the story. Uh, uh, the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? Now, Pity Job, he didn't know what was going on, that he was the discussion between God and Satan. <laughs> He's the object of their discussion. Um, and Satan says, well, no wonder he does this because you take such good care of him. Look at verse 12. We pick up the story. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he, Job, has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, you see where God placed a limitation on this evil being. 
He didn't have free hand. Who's in charge here? We see that. Let's pick up the story in Job chapter 2. You know the story. Uh, terrible things happened to Job, and yet he, he kept the faith. He did not blame God. He did not crack, as we might say. And then we pick up the story in Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Must be a regular occurrence. I'm not sure what the schedule is, but they do come before God. So Satan, going on, he says, and, uh, and Satan also came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? The answer was the same. So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. There may have been a little sarcasm in that. I'm not sure. Uh, Satan obviously has an attitude. Now, you know the story again. Um, he said, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And so Satan again says, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. So he said, let's up the ante. Let's put some more pressure on Job. And so God took that bet, using a figure of speech, <laughs> and put him under his authority. Now go back down to verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he, Job, is in your hand, but spare his life. Now, brethren, as we look at this, what we're seeing, the reason I read these scriptures is to show that Satan is under God's authority. He can only act within the scope of what God allows him to do. It's very, very plain. Let's fast forward down to the end. Let's look at Revelation chapter 12. As we look at the myth about there being a great battle, a great conflict in that way. Revelation 12, verse 12. Revelation 12, verse 12. Very interesting chapter. We all like to read where it talks about a place prepared. And we see, talks about Satan here. And in verse 12 of Revelation 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now, how does he know that, brethren? How does he know that? Because he knows that God has a plan. And he has only a limited time. And then God will end his time. So while he has time, he has great wrath. And he's going to do what he can to wreak havoc. Brethren, Satan has his time. And then God will intervene and bring his ways, his government, God's government, to this earth. Now, there was a battle. There was a great battle, a spiritual conflict in which Jesus came head to head with Satan, the devil, and won. Turn back to um, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Again, a very familiar passage of Scripture to you but I think particularly meaningful on this day, on the Day of Atonement. Matthew 4. Here we have the story of Christ overcoming Satan and qualifying to rule on this earth. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit 
into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. Now, that's one of those understatements of the Bible that just kind of states matter of fact. 40 days and 40 nights. Brethren, after a few hours, how do you feel? How do you feel? It's really hard, I think, for us to grasp what it must have been like. And yet, obviously, he had supernatural power and, 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 and great strength to do that. And yet, for 40 days and 40 nights. But he obviously was hungry and, and weakened condition, as it were. Now, let's look at verse 3. Now, when the tempter, it's talking about Satan here, came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So here we see that, that Satan is playing on Jesus' need. He knows that he's hungry. He knows that he's weakened. And so what he does, first of all, he, he questions him and says, If... You know, designed, I'm sure, a little twist. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. But brethren, how did Jesus answer him? He used the sword. He used his offensive weapon. In verse 4 he says, But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he answered him in a way that Satan could not refute it. Brethren, I submit to you that when Satan comes at you, he will come at you with what you need. If you have a need, he will come at you there. How do you defeat him? First of all, obviously resist him with the power of God's Holy Spirit. But you use the sword, knowing the scriptures, knowing how to apply them, will help you to refute the tempter and be able to stand up against that sort of thing when you are tested. Look at verse 5, going on. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, a very high place, you see, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So here we see that, that Satan is trying to play on Christ's vanity. But Christ doesn't have any vanity. You see, he doesn't have to prove himself. He has nothing to prove, as it were. And he, Satan taunts him to try to get under his skin, as it were, to get him riled up. You know, you lose your temper, you'll make a foolish decision. You'll say something you shouldn't. You, you'll answer a challenge that you don't need to answer. So Satan tried that on Jesus Christ. He tried to get him to act with vanity. And yet, Jesus again answered him from the Scriptures. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. He had the answer. Of course, Jesus knew the Scriptures and was able to use them and, and, and just answered him with a perfect uh, squelch, as it were. Going on in verse 8, the, the test continues for Jesus Christ. Again, verse 8, The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All the riches, all the things that were extant at that time, he showed it all to him. Verse 9, and he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan, the God of this world, offered Jesus Christ the world. He said, you don't have to go through all that that you're going to have to go through. You can have it now. I'll give it to you. 
I'll give it to you now. If you'll just fall down and worship me. Look at verse 10. Jesus again had, uh, he exercised his authority. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the eternal your God and him only shall you serve. So clearly he rebuked Satan and sent him away. Look at verse 11. Notice, Satan obeyed Christ. He had to. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So here we see, brethren, that there was a great conflict. Satan threw everything he had at him, and Jesus was able to defend on each situation and conquer Satan, and really, at this point, really qualify to be the the Messiah in that way. Now let's look at one more proof about who is in charge. Who is in charge? Look at Matthew chapter 28. We know Matthew 28 is a place contains the Great Commission. We often refer to it, preaching the gospel to all the world, something that we put our whole heart into in the living church of God, something that's important to us. It's why we exist. It's what we do. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus set the stage and told them, who he was. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Brethren, all authority. God has given Jesus Christ total authority. He has the authority to do the things that we're talking about. Now, clearly, as we think about this, brethren, we see that the one we worship, the one we follow, has the authority to do the things that He tells us He's going to do. We have seen from Scripture that He will carry His plans out. He will bring them to pass. Now, now let's go to the subject of sin and Satan's role in the sins of this world down through time and down through history. Now, let's go back to Genesis again. Genesis chapter 3. Even though Satan was limited, he has played a role through history. Genesis chapter 3. Very basic, brethren. But if we remember the basics, we always stay on course. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Because he knew the answer to that question, but he asked it to set up the situation. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. It's clear that Eve understood the instructions. It wasn't that she didn't know. She understood clearly what God had said to do. Then in verse 4, It says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You see, he lied. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, brethren, Satan played on Eve's vanity. You know, you're as good as God. You You don't need him for this, you see. And then he lied to her. Now, brethren, he knew. Satan knew that it would bring a death sentence. So Satan, as good as killed her, he was a murderer. He knew what the result would be. Satan is a murderer. We see that from there. 
I'm not going to turn to all these scriptures, brethren, but there are other places in the scripture where we see Satan's presence through the ages. I'll give them to you, and maybe in your personal Bible study you can read those and and think about it. Before the flood, in Genesis chapter 6, you see that mankind's thoughts were on evil continually. Where did those thoughts come from? From that evil being. You see, Satan caused the problems there. After the flood, you can read about the, the sons of Noah, and you get down to Nimrod and some of the things that they were doing. And when you understand what it says, obviously they were under the influence of this evil being. At the Tower of Babel, when they were doing things that God did not want them to do, of course, he broke that up and confused the languages, but Satan was there at that period in history causing those problems. Down in the time of the patriarchs, we read about Job and how Satan was involved there. So you see this thread that runs through history as recorded in the Bible where Satan was there doing what he could to thwart God's plan. In David's time, you know the story in First Chronicles 21 where Satan moved David to make a census. And God had instructed him not to do that. And the results were disastrous. Thousands of people lost their lives because of Satan's influence. Just a, an indication of his uh, presence and his activity down through time. In Daniel's time, you know the story in Daniel 10 of how Satan was involved there. And then in the disciples' time, let's turn over to Luke 22. Luke 22. Just looking at some examples of how Satan has done what he can down through time to cause trouble and problems. He still does it today. Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 3. This was at the time that Christ was going to be betrayed. You know the story. But let's read it just so we have it from the Scripture. Luke 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, named Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And you know, then he went away and betrayed Jesus Christ to the priest. In verse 5 he says, And they were glad and agreed to give him money. We know that he was a thief. He took money from the box, and Satan used that. So we see Satan very active, even in Christ's ministry and life. And he was the one that uh, that moved Judas to betray him. Let's look at verse 31 in that same chapter. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus is giving instruction to the disciples, and we pick up the story in verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Satan wanted Peter. He wanted to give him, he said he wanted to sift him as wheat. I'm not sure what that'd be like, but it wouldn't be pleasant, I'm sure. Verse 32, Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But there was Satan right there at that time trying to, get control of and to cause Peter problems and Christ intervene. You know that that happened. Let's look at in the apostles' time, just going on down. Look at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18. Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he said, 
First Thessalonians 2, verse 18. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. So we see in Paul's time, he continually had to deal with this. Satan hindered him, trying to cause problems. I'm sure today, brethren, that we run into problems that are caused by Satan. They, they had tremendous problems like that. Let's, uh, we, can expect, we can expect interference, brethren. Look over a few pages at 2 Corinthians. Just looking at examples of Satan's influence and interference. 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 13, we see this working out today. It's worked out down through time, but even today, in this end time, we see what's described here playing out. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Rather than they have whole television networks today, <laughs> you see, where they are are uh, transforming themselves, holding themselves out to be apostles of Christ. So we see that happening. Satan is behind that. Verse 14, And no wonder, we shouldn't be surprised, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He will have on the good suit. When he, he is not going to be some uh, monstrous thing, you see. He will, he will transform himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So, brethren, we see that even today, Satan is trying to influence people, and he is influencing them, and he's trying to, to thwart the work and cause problems for, for all of us. So we have to recognize him and know about that as we, as we go along. Now, <clears throat> brethren, we also see... Uh, we ought to take a look at the prehistoric account before this present age of how Satan came to be. Who is this individual we're focusing on today? Turn back to Isaiah 14. Students of the Bible know where I'm going, but let's look at it today. Isaiah 14. We read about this evil being. Isaiah 14. I hope you'll read the whole chapter. We'll start in Isaiah 14, verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who have weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation. We see here that Lucifer, the light bringer, became Satan, the adversary, because of pride and vanity as we go on. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend, he said, above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Satan envied God. He wanted to be God, you see. I will be like the Most High. Yet, the Scripture says, you shall be brought down to Sheol, down to the pit, to the lowest depths of the pit. His plan would not work out. And yet, we see how it began. Turn over to Ezekiel 28. We pick up some more of the story. You know, the Scripture says, here little, there little, line upon line, precept upon precept. And here we see in Ezekiel 28 more of the story. Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, 
Ezekiel 28 and verse 12. Ezekiel 28, verse 12, in the middle of the verse, it says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, describing this angelic being. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And we read about that, you see. And every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, the beryl, onyx, and jasper, beautiful stones, precious and semi-precious stones, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Satan is a created being. You, verse 14, were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. God had obviously wonderful things for this being to do. He says, you walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Iniquity, brethren, it means sinful ways until sin was found within him. And then it says, therefore, because he sinned, until iniquity is found in you, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Brethren, look around you. Wherever you see violence, things blowing up, things being destroyed, (laughs) Satan is involved. He is the destroyer. Violence is his nature. You became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, God says, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, a covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. So we see that Satan, uh, iniquity was found within him. He tried to take over God's throne. He was thrown out and certainly has been as we see, the God of this world during this time. Now, we see that, and then yet Jesus Christ described him specifically. Turn to John chapter 8, and we'll see how, John, how our Savior describes Satan the devil. Leaves no doubt who he is and what we're dealing with, what this world faces, and why he needs to be taken away. John 8, chapter 44. John 8. Verse 44, Christ's words here, John 8, verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. There is no truth in this evil being, brethren. When he, the devil, speaks, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. A very succinct identification and a definition of who Satan is. He is behind it all, all of the evil that we see from the beginning, this evil, evil being. Brethren, human beings, as free moral agents, that's all of us, have responsibility for our personal sins. On that, the Bible is very plain. We are all responsible for our own actions. Let's look at Romans 3. Again, a very basic scripture, but today is the day for looking at those things. Romans 3. We have our responsibility, and it involves every one of us, brethren. Romans 3, verse 23. 
It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Brethren, that's a memory scripture for, I'm sure, for you, I'm sure. But that means everyone, you, me, everyone who has ever lived, fall into that category. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Except, except for Jesus Christ. He lived and did not sin. We see that in Hebrews chapter 4. We know that He is qualified because of what we read, but let's look at that. don't want to wear you out with too many Scriptures, but I do want to, to uh, look at what the Scripture says today because it tells the story so well. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We'll start in verse 14. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Paul writing here, Seeing that we have a great high priest... Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Brethren, by coming here today, keeping this day, by obeying the command to fast, by doing all the things you do, you see, you're holding fast the confession. You're putting into practice the faith that has been opened up to you. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we see, brethren, Jesus Christ lived uh, His life and had all of the temptations, all of the things that we experience, and yet He was able to do that without sin, which qualifies Him then to fulfill His role. Now, brethren, what is the result of sin? You know, we all love payday. Anybody here doesn't like payday? Everybody loves payday. Look over at Romans 6. Let's look at a payday that none of us want. This is one payday that none of us want. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 verse 23. Again, a memory verse for you. But looking at it in the context of what we're talking about today, brethren. Romans chapter 6. We've established that we're all sinners. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's what we get. That's what we earn when we sin. That, that's, that's the payday that none of us want, you see. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brethren, death is what we earn, what we get from sin. Now, Satan is ultimately responsible for the sins of the world as the instigator, the mastermind, the force one who plots and conspires against God uh, and man. Satan is the conspirator. You know, there, there's a lot of conspirator theories out there, people that get involved in conspiracies. Uh, and certainly there is a conspiracy, and that is Satan the devil, who has conspired against God and man from the beginning. Now, a couple of verses make it very plain. Look at Revelation 12. We were there earlier, but we didn't read this verse. Revelation 12. Revelation 12, verse 9. Talking here about that evil being. Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. Interesting how many uh, societies and cultures have dragons as a part of their culture and so on. Picturing, I'm sure, uh, this serpent of old, Satan the devil. <clears throat> Called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. 
he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast with him. So clearly we see that this, this whole world, it equates to all have sinned. You see, the whole world has been um, deceived by this evil being. And only because God has opened our minds do we understand things differently. Now turn over to 2 Corinthians 4. Paul, writing about the same subject. As we think about this evil being, 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, we'll look at verse 3. Here he's talking about those people who don't understand, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But even if our gospel, this good message you see, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Those who don't understand, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see that, brethren? Uh, this, this is the real fake. <laughs> this is the imitation God, the God of this world. People who are totally sincere, who would give their lives, you see, because they believe what they believe, and yet they've been deceived by the God of this age. How evil is that being to do that and to mislead people in that way? Now, brethren, thus far we've seen that the world down through the ages has been a mess, a series of tragedies caused by the sins of men under the influence of the ultimate evil one, Satan, the adversary. Now, why is it necessary for us to have an atonement, which this day pictures? Why is that necessary? You know, God doesn't do things without a reason. So he shows us that reason. Turn back to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Familiar scriptures to you all. But it tells us a very important thing. Isaiah 59. Starting in verse 1. Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Wouldn't that be pathetic if God just couldn't reach us? <laughs> you see, how pathetic, a God that just couldn't reach you. And that's what it's saying. The, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy, that it cannot hear. God's not limited, brethren. He's not limited. He's all-wise and all-powerful. There's not anything that He can't do. Verse 2, but your iniquities... You see, your sin, your evil doing, your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. For your hands are defiled with bloodshed and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. And you can read the rest of it, brethren. But what we're seeing here in reading this is that without having our sins covered, we're cut off from God because our sins separate us from God. So something has to cover those sins so that we will no longer be cut off from God. So, brethren, we see the blood of Christ, our Passover, reconciles us to God. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. Let's read that. I can tell you that, and you believe that, but where does it say that? Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Here we read about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Passover. We keep the Passover so we understand this. 
But on this day, we look back and review that. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to come around. You see, He did this before because He loved us. Verse 9, Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Brethren, because of that sacrifice, we are no longer cut off. We are no longer cut off. We have the promise of eternal life in the kingdom of God. It's what carries us through in difficult times, looking on beyond the present difficulties, whatever it might be, toward that wonderful promise of the kingdom of God. So we have that promise. But brethren, what about Satan? He's not repentant. He's not repentant, and he's shown that he won't change. Millennia have gone by, and he's as evil or more evil than ever, you see. He's not going to change. The responsibility for all the sins of mankind fall rightly on him. Satan is ultimately responsible. Brethren, justice demands that Satan pay the price. That's what the Scripture revealed. Now, as long as Satan is free to go to and fro on the earth, as we've said, he, he bragged about, as it were, mankind will be influenced by his evil thoughts and deeds. And I could take the rest of the afternoon to catalog some of those things that have occurred right here in Charlotte. Young girl, 15 years of age, murdered at a school bus stop this last week. Uh, all sorts of things. You could just go on with a litany of terrible things. Why is that happening? Because Satan is still on the loose, going to and fro, influencing people in these ways. Now, brethren, God knew this, and he provided for it in his plan. And it was acted out long ago by Aaron, the high priest. And I want to take a brief look at that this afternoon. There's a principle, though, that uh, we need to look at first. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talked about it in this wonderful chapter on the resurrection. There is a principle as we look at type and anti-type. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46. Here he talks about in here the first man, Adam, and then the, the second Adam, the physical and the spiritual. And in verse 46, he gives this principle. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the f spiritual. So what is Paul saying? That in the Scriptures we find the physical example we learn from that, and then there's the spiritual part later on, just as there was the physical Adam and later Jesus Christ. And then we have physical examples, and later there's a spiritual fulfillment. And so we see that principle, first the physical, then the spiritual, type and anti-type. With that in mind, let's look back at Leviticus 16. Here's the ritual of the two goats, which is so confusing to some people. Leviticus 16, here's this ancient ritual that was done, and yet there's something that we learn, eternal truths that we glean from this. Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire 
before the Lord and died. You can read about that in, in another place where it talks about why they died. They, they, they disobeyed clear instructions and God struck them dead. So the, 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 more, the message is we're to obey God and follow those instructions. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time to the holy place inside the veil. I'm sure Aaron uh, listened. He'd lost two sons because they didn't follow instructions. They, he listened. Lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud before the mercy seat. And then it goes on and starts talking about uh, the, the different offerings and so on. It talks about here the, the special clothing that he wore that pictured the righteous acts of the saints. And we don't have time to read all of that today, but I hope that you will. But let's, let's pick up the story in Leviticus 16, verse 5. And he, Aaron, shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. So we see that these two kids of the goats were taken. And then we see in verse 7, He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Notice here, in God did the choosing through the method of casting lots. So one goat was to picture Jesus Christ. That was the Lord's goat. And then the other one was, it says the scapegoat, but the, the real word here is, in Hebrew, is Azazel, or Azazel. Um, and uh, the scapegoat is really not a good translation. Um, but... They had the two goats for a special reason. We go on. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. Just as Jesus Christ was offered, you see, as a sacrifice for our sins. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat or the uh, Azazel goat, Azazel goat, shall be presented live before the Lord to make atonement on it and to let it go as the Azazel into the wilderness. So here we see that this goat was to be used in a different way. talks then about the, the sacrifice and how Aaron prepared himself. And we pick up the story then in verse 15. Then he, Aaron, shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat before and on the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions for all their sins, so that he shall do for the, and so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all of his assembly. So it shows what he was doing there, getting himself ready for what he had to do. Then we pick up the story in verse 20. And when he has made an end to atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. This is the goat that pictures Satan the devil. Aaron, the high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel for all their transgressions, covering all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. That may have taken a long time. <laughs> this was a sinful people. 
So, but he went in great detail, I'm sure, in recounting the things that the people needed to repent of, the things that had gone wrong. And, and with his hands on the goat, symbolically placing all these uh, sins on the head of the goat, and shall send it away, this goat, into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man, a fit man. Verse 22, the goat... This Azazel goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities into an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So we read about this, and it seems like such a strange ritual. And yet later on we'll see how it plays out in the end time, and we'll read that in a moment. But first of all, going on down to verse 29, what's the purpose of this ritual? God always tells us, and here in verse 29 of Leviticus 16, He says, This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. So here we are, brethren, on that very day. You shall afflict your souls, and we're all doing that by going without food and water, and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Verse 31, It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. So, brethren, we do that now. It was done long ago in the physical sense. We do it today in the spiritual sense to learn spiritual lessons. Now, brethren, this physical ritual that we read about here plays out at Christ's return. Looking forward, it's going to play out at His return. Turn over to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. Revelation 20. Very exciting time. We kept the Feast of Trumpets a few days ago and rehearsed some of these things. And today we pick up the story. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Uh, a mental picture that we have. I'm sure all of us might have a little different picture, but we see in our mind this, this great event happening and unfolding. Verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old. And I'm going to guess he won't go quietly. So, so. It's interesting to see how this will go. He laid hand hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So, brethren, we see that just as that Satan, that goat long ago was sent out into the wilderness... As a symbol of this, here we see Satan being shut up and sealed up so that he cannot influence the, the world for a thousand years. Think of it, brethren, a world with no evil influence, no tempter, no lying spirit to deceive. God's way can flourish un, unheeded, unhindered. Finally, the sins of mankind and the evil deeds of Satan will be covered. Atonement will have been achieved when the responsibility is placed on that evil one. Now, brethren, how, why did God have us to fast on this special day? I mean, I always tell people that God's people excel at breaking bread. 
right? That's what we do best. But today we come and we don't break bread. We're here without food and water. Why did he do that? Well, brethren, I'm sure there's several reasons. Fasting pictures the time when we'll no longer need to eat physical food, when we'll no longer be earthbound, as it were. Certainly that's a part of it. And brethren, we fast because of guilt from sin. We have two examples of that. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Here we see the example of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Moses at that time dealing with physical Israel. Today, of course, we are spiritual Israel. Deuteronomy 9, verse 18. This is at the time when the law was being given and so on. Deuteronomy 9, verse 18. And I fell down before the Lord at first 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate nor drank because of all of your sin, which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Moses was fasting because of the sins of the people. It was, uh, it was to draw close to God from that. It was to, to illustrate that. Turn over to Ezra. Wonderful book about um, the, the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra and Nehemiah, you know the story. Let's see what Ezra did. We have an example. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 10. Ezra, who was so well prepared for his job. Ezra chapter 10 and verse 6. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Elisha. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. So fasting, you see, is done at that time. And from time to time during the year, I'm sure you fast to draw close to God for some special reason, for someone or for yourself. And it helps us to do that. And we have those examples. Fasting reminds us, brethren, that we are still weak and mortal flesh. It reminds us of how much our thoughts are taken up with self. You know, I always joke and say that we're either finishing up a meal or planning the next one. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> we're seldom four hours away from the dinner table or, or, because that's how we are. We, we enjoy that. I'm so thankful that God made eating pleasurable. He could have made it painful, and we would have done it anyway, but we wouldn't have enjoyed it. <laughs> he made it pleasurable, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm sure you are, particularly as we get ready to go to a wonderful feast. But... Being fasting reminds us of how much our thoughts are taken up with self and with the physical. And although it's a day of fasting, atonement is also a day of rejoicing because of what it pictures. It pictures something <clears throat> uh, wonderful. It is a spiritual feast of drinking in God's Word, which we've done a lot of today, <clears throat> a day of great hope, a day of joy because of what it pictures. God and the human race cannot be together until this day comes. When Satan will be held responsible for his misdeeds, when he will be banished and he will be bound. It's a day that has deep personal meaning for us as spirit beings will replace Satan and his demons to teach this world the ways of God. We have time for one more scripture. I want to look at that. Turn to Isaiah 30. What is your job going to be, brethren, when this occurs? Isaiah 30. Again, you Bible students know where I'm going with this, but it's very important. It gives us something to look forward to. Isaiah 30, verse 20. 
And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. Brethren, that will be your job, to be those teachers guiding and helping and leading people, teaching them the ways of God. Brethren, as we have reviewed the details of this day, I hope you've gained some insights, that you have increased your understanding on the meaning of the Day of Atonement. Sometimes songwriters say it best. We've heard some wonderful music today. I want to conclude with the words of a song written by my friend John Trulove of Harrison, Arkansas, who died a few years ago. He was, he was a musician and songwriter, and he wrote a song entitled The Kingdom. I won't sing it for you. I'll read it as a poem. I'm thinking of the coming world tomorrow, where sin won't be about, around and Satan will be bound. The armies will no longer need their weapons. They'll beat them into tools, brand new farming tools. God will bless the widows and the orphans. He'll wipe away their tears for a thousand happy years. The crippled will no longer need their wheelchairs. They'll be running as a heart, leaping as a deer. There'll be no angry beasts up in the mountains. They'll be following a child, playing with a child. The arid, burning, lonely waste and desert will blossom as a rose, with flowers like a rose. Gone will be the sorrow and the pain when Jesus comes back to the earth again, comes back to gather up his own, to reign with him forevermore. I'm thinking of the coming world tomorrow where sin won't be around and Satan will be bound.